Just days before the Republican convention in 2016, 150 tech executives and investors published a stinging open letter condemning the man the party was about to nominate for president. Donald Trump's candidacy, these tech moguls wrote, was fueled by, quote, anger, bigotry, fear of new ideas, and a fundamental belief that America is weak and in decline, end quote. That was undoubtedly the view of most of the big players in Silicon Valley, but there was one who had a decidedly contrary view. Peter Thiel was the billionaire co-founder of PayPal and Palantir, and was the first outside investor in Facebook, giving him instant entree and more than a little clout with the company's CEO, Mark Zuckerberg. And Thiel had gone all in for Trump, speaking at the convention, donating more than $1 million to a Trump super PAC, and later serving on his transition team as he sought to place figures who shared his unorthodox views of the world in high places in the U.S. government. How much influence did Thiel have during the Trump era, and how much power does he yield today in the insular world of Silicon Valley? We'll discuss with Max Chafkin, a reporter for Bloomberg Businessweek, who has just published an exhaustively researched new book on Thiel on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. So I have been fascinated by uh, Peter Thiel for some time, actually ever since I had dinner with him at the Republican convention in Cleveland in the summer of 2016. Did I ever tell you about this story? I mean, <laughs> That's uh, where you were that <laughs> night at the convention, yeah. 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 when, when yes. we were out uh, bar hopping. Carousing, you were actually, yes. wor- you were actually working. Work. I was so you, working. Cor- you caroused with Peter Thiel? Yes, I did. It's actually quite a story. I, I actually had no idea who Peter Thiel was at the time. I was uh, hooking up with my old friend, Mickey Cows, who was at the convention, and he invites me to this dinner at, he tells me, some Silicon Valley mogul's uh, mansion, which he had rented in in, uh, Cleveland. That's um, Teal, not Kaus, who rented the mansion. (laughs) And I get there, and um, Mickey's friend Ann Coulter is there, as is Chris Kobach, the Kansas... A veritable Star Wars bar. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, the Kansas Secretary of State, who literally invented the whole voter fraud thing for the Republicans uh, years before Donald Trump started uh, jumping on it. There was another uh, woman. Julia Hahn. Julia Hahn, who was a Breitbart news reporter who had formerly worked as a producer for Laura Ingram, was a sort of... um, protege of Steve Bannon. And, um, you know, they're all there. And then later on, after we have dinner, Teal arrives with his hedge fund sidekick, Kevin Harrington, who later goes to work at the NSC. And, you know, they spend all night sort of going over Teal's big speech at the Republican convention the next day and or, or the next night. And what I remember is there was a big argument because Coulter was trying to get Teal to take out the passage in the speech that got all the attention, which was, you know, him going public about the fact that he was gay, that he was a gay man and an immigrant who was supporting Donald Trump. Uh, And uh, at least uh, Teal did not strike me as a particularly imposing guy. He was kind of, um, you know, pleasant, not particularly demonstrative, but all the contradictions that we're going to talk about with Max Chafkin were there that night. A guy hanging with these far-right people like Coulter and Kobach, an immigrant, a gay man who's promoting the candidacy of Donald Trump. So was he, uh, did, did he offer, you know, kind of the blood of young kids to uh, promote your youth at the dinner by any <laughs> chance? No, you, is you, that you, something? You know, so yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, no, so there do was, tell. What there is was this? a story that made the... Um, 
that made the rounds uh, about four years ago that Peter Thiel in a, in a search for youth uh, was, uh, was proposing that if you invest, that you, if you inject yourself with the blood of a young person, it would be a, essentially a fountain of youth. It was a, it was a, one of the more outer, you know, kind of ultra stories involving Peter Thiel. It turns out he possibly was investing in a company that was proposing to do that. And his history of investing in companies and of, through his investments, becoming the consigliere to many of the leading lights of Silicon Valley today is really what this book yeah, is all I mean, about. Look, his, his biggest protege or his, his most successful investment, obviously, is Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg. Right. Right. I mean, just the idea. I mean, we talk about, you know, people's influence. I referred that to that in the introduction. I mean, this is a guy who, you know, most of the public doesn't know. He doesn't testify in public. He rarely gives speeches or, or interviews, but he has this enormous amount of clout. I mean, he gave, you know, Zuckerberg listens to him. There's one passage in this uh, book by, uh, Max Chafkin, which is titled, by the way, The Contrarian, where Zuckerberg and Thiel are meeting and they're, they decide, Zuckerberg agrees to Thiel that Facebook will not censor Donald Trump on its pages. Now, this is, you know, before the big lie and everything that took place after the election. But uh, that's, that's an indication of just how much clout Teal has. Zuckerberg used Teal as cover to protect him from attacks by conservatives on Capitol Hill, that he was censoring them and all, and, you know, in the process, made some pretty big concessions. Yeah, and used, used Teal as his broker, essentially, for a string of deals with, the, uh, with Trump and with the, kind of the right-wing Yeah. So this is all a good segue to uh, the, uh, all of the Facebook stories that are, that, are, that are in the news. But before we get to that, Mike, I mean, what was your what was your impression of him uh, when you had uh, dinner with him? Because one of the things this one of the things this book brings up is like, you know, how much of it with Teal is ideology and how much of it is he's a provocateur, kind of the enfant terrible of, of Silicon Valley Valley. What was your sense? Yeah, I mean, I he did not strike me as the enfant terrible if I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, <laughs> that particular night. If anything, I mean, I was a bit admiring of the fact that he was rejecting Coulter's pleas to take out references to his uh, gay identity. He seemed to want to make a point of that. But other than that, I mean, I did not realize just how powerful this guy is, how I, I got a glimpse of how wealthy he is by the mansion that we were having the dinner in, but, you know, just how big a player he has been behind the scenes. Right? Yeah, uh, this book talks about him not being a household name. You hadn't heard of him. And yet it talks about Tealism being kind of the ethos of Silicon Valley. So it's a fascinating, and it'll be a fascinating discussion uh, with Max Chafkin. And that ethos is in full display right now with all of the stories about Facebook, where there's evidence not only of what Mike mentioned, which is that kind of deal that Mark Zuckerberg possibly cut with Trump in the White House, but there's also a kind of a series of breaking stories that have come out about Facebook creating uh, a dual track system for the way it monitors its users, where VIPs are essentially exempted from the rules. Evidence that Facebook has been warned persistently about the use of its platform by human traffickers and by abusers overseas. Oh, the one, and the one that really hits home for me is Instagram, because I have two uh, teenage daughters and all of this evidence that, you know, Facebook executives knew and uh, knew a whole lot about how Instagram has become this toxic environment for teenage girls. And uh, they've done very little about it. And not only that, they're launching a an Instagram for 13-year-old girls. So mm -hmm. kind of doubling down. Yeah. And this is all, by the way, coming out, not all of it, but a lot of it is coming out from 
Facebook employees, a kind of internal rebellion leaking to the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post and other news organizations. Right, right. And so and then we have this like, you know, great story in The New York Times today about something called Project Amplify, which is something Zuckerberg recently launched. And basically what they're doing is they're manipulating Facebook's news feed to uh, inject it with stories, with positive news stories about Facebook. This is their response to all the criticism that they've been getting. They're going to, you know, plant pro-Facebook stories on the news feed that so many people are reading. And um, I find that a bit creepy on its face. Yeah. And there's, uh, there's uh, you know, there's a direct line between tealism and teal and, and what Facebook is doing today and what Facebook is in the news for. Yeah. Um, and but but it, look at at the end of the day, once again with Facebook, the question is: Is this a lot of sound and fury that signifies nothing? In the sense that you know there is this familiar pattern. Um, you get these uh, scathing revelations followed by you know denials, and you know someone from Facebook, Zuckerberg, or someone else will write a blog po- post, you know, pushing back. Then ultimately, there's a lot of some heat from Congress. Zuckerberg, um, you get these kind of half-hearted apologies from Zuckerberg. He comes up and uh, testifies, acknowledges that there were mistakes, you know, and that Facebook is committed to doing uh, better. And, and, and then the same thing repeats itself. And meanwhile, Facebook is worth a trillion dollars. It made $30 billion in profits last year. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, Zuckerberg doesn't want to do anything that will interfere with, you know, the interactions between, you know, the platform and users, because that's how they make money. <laughs> yeah, well, um, a lot to talk about here with um, with Max Chafkin about Teal, about his influence on Facebook, um, and uh, about much About the else. blood of young, about the, the blood of young, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think that should be a whole show, by the way. <laughs> but like, just before we get to that, uh, just a preview, uh, I, I have to say, reading what's going on on Capitol Hill this week uh, and monitoring it, it does look like next week could be quite climactic and potentially disastrous for, A, the country, if they don't uh, uh, approve the debt ceiling, which seems an extension of the debt ceiling, which seems uh, very real, and then also the potential collapse of Biden's entire domestic agenda. Yeah, remember, remember when we were excited about 2020, uh, putting closing the door on 2020 and uh, getting to better days, the better days of 2021. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. think they're gonna. I think they're gonna pass the the debt ceiling ultimately. I mean, it's a game of chicken. We've been through this before. No one They'll wants to the ultimately debt ceiling, be, But what but about the uh, reconciliation? The, the, the three point five trillion well, reconciliation, it, which they right, don't well, have the votes for. It's not going to be three point five trillion. The question is. I mean, there are a lot of questions, but, you know, I think the most important questions remains, will Manchin and Cinema backs back? Well, it depends on your definition of cave. I mean, Manchin's already said, you know, he'd be he's for reconciliation if it's one, one point five trillion. But the question is, can they get to to two or two point five? And I think they've got to send I, I think they'll have to send some kind of smoke signals showing that they will be open to that because that might help get the progressives on board, even though they're obviously holding out for the $3.5 trillion. And then the other thing is, and this is going to be fascinating to watch uh, next week, is this is kind of the moment of truth for Biden, uh, because he is finally kind of plunging in to the negotiations. Um, as we record this on Friday, he's uh, going to be meeting with House members, not a part of the Congress uh, where he is, you know, all, all has all that much experience as a senator, but he's going to deign to actually meet with people from the lower chamber uh, to try to get this done. And uh, it's a huge test for him. And, you know, I, I don't know if his presidency rides on this, but it's certainly going to be hard for him uh, going forward if it, if it does uh, crash and burn. A huge uh, test for him and for Pelosi. I mean, this is, you know, the 
you know, biggest moment she's had in quite some time, and everybody has lauded her ability to count votes and get things through in a crunch. But, you know, I think uh, whether she can pull a rabbit out of the hat this time um, is going to be worth watching, I think. We were going to do a, a, a show with one of the authors of uh, uh, one of the books about Pelosi, but uh, I think maybe that's uh, time is coming soon as we see what happens next week. Um, in any case, um, we got a lot to talk about with Max Chafkin, so let's get to it. Okay, we've now got with us Max Chafkin, Bloomberg uh, Business Week reporter and author of the new book, The Contrarian, Peter Thiel and Silicon Valley's Pursuit of Power. Max, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me. So fascinating book, fascinating subject. And I guess Peter Thiel is a name that, uh, you know, is widely known in Silicon Valley, not so much in the rest of the country. What prompted you to want to write his biography? Yeah. So like you said, Thiel is well known in, in tech and that's where I come from, right? I, I'm, I've been a tech reporter and editor for like the last 15 years. And, you know, Thiel has been sort of hanging in and around and behind just a lot of the the big whatever tech stories uh, during that during that era. Most famously, probably he was the first outside investor of Facebook. He's, you know, close to Mark Zuckerberg. He's a long serving um, Facebook board member. He um, co-founded PayPal in the li- late 90s and then and then started this company Palantir, uh, which is basically like a data mining surveillance thing. And so Thiel would be, I think, like totally an interesting, worthy character, even even a, a book about power like this one is would be would be worthy and interesting without kind of what happened starting in 2016. But but in, of course, in 2016, Teal became prominent supporter of Donald Trump, donated a million bucks to a Trump uh, aligned pack, you know, right after the Access Hollywood tape dropped, got on the transition team. And right around that same period was exposed and then kind of, you know, gloriously took credit for being the guy behind the Gawker litigation, being the the person who um, funded Hulk Hogan's lawsuit against Gawker Media, which, of course, destroyed the company and was framed, you know, and framed partly by Teal, right, as a as a revenge mission. He they had published something he didn't like post in 2008 saying that he was gay he was not out publicly at the time and you know and and for 8 years stewed and then ended in this you know crazy fashion with with a 100 million dollar judgment and the bankruptcy of Gawker and its founder so so yeah so i, I what's what i find interesting about him is he's somebody who has been sort of very kind of out in the open acquiring power and sort of you know whatever like yeah accruing influence in the realm of tech and then starting over the last couple of years has sort of been moving towards political engagement. Now, he's always been kind of a conservative, a bit of a, you know, like an activist, far-right activist type, but the sort of real moves have come over the last couple of years, and, and that, I think, you know, makes the story all the more interesting. So, so Max, we're going to get into all of those aspects of his, his life and his, his career, you know, the Trump, the Gawker lawsuit, but you tell his kind of his origin story about, you know, how he came to be who he is, and you also talk about Thielism, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but as being the dominant ethos um, of Silicon Valley today. So talk to us a little bit about how he came to be who he is. And um, because he is a, um, you know, kind of he's controversial, he is idiosyncratic, his politics, although there is a lot of uh, libertarianism in Silicon Valley, they don't really line up with most uh, tech CEOs today. So tell us about that journey. Yeah. So Teal's childhood kind of, in a lot of ways, fairly typical tech geek childhood. He was a loner, kind of brilliant loner, nerd type who was who was bullied. There were a, a couple of uh, probably important differences, you know, one of which is that, you know, he's an immigrant, his, which is kind of interesting considering, you know, he's he's now famous for backing these kind of nativist political candidates. But he's an immigrant. The family bounced around a lot. I think that, you know, further kind of created this sense of, you know, Peter Thiel against the world. 
And this kind of all exploded, I'd say, you know, at Stanford University, where Thiel in, you know, in the mid 80s starts this newspaper called the Stanford Review, which is like an activist student newspaper. There were kind of versions of this going on at college campuses across the country. It's very similar to the Dartmouth Review, uh, the Cornell Review, which is Ann Coulter's, you know, the newspaper that Ann Coulter was involved with. And it's, you know, it's, it's uh, today you kind of talk about like trolling, I think would be the, would be the way that we sort of talk about it. But it's, it's kind of this provocation saying these kind of borderline offensive or you know in some cases truly offensive things designed to like kind of take the piss or whatever out of the liberal establishment which at the time was you know this the Stanford faculty and, and administration and w- what I think is interesting about that and, and kind of part of the reason I bring it up is that teal you know later on you know starts PayPal and and the the group of sort of early PayPal employees becomes known as the PayPal mafia and it's this uh, it's like really famous if you're in if you're you know if you follow tech or whatever but it's it's all of these you know really successful men who went on starting around 2000 to fund and start some of the most successful companies in tech so so it includes Elon Musk, Reid Hoffman, founder of LinkedIn, the guys behind Yelp, the guys behind YouTube and so on. And what is kind of underappreciated is that many of those people, although not Elon Musk, you know, originally were were at the Stanford Review. I mean, we call it the PayPal Mafia, but probably would be better known as the Stanford Review Mafia because because so much of that kind of activist us against the world energy came out of this newspaper. This and this by the way, later newspaper. Josh Hawley is writing for Stanford Review, so they it, it is a paper that gave us lots of prominent figures. Yeah, yeah. And Hawley, of course, is, you know, now a senator and a senator who was elected partly, you know, in part with um, some help, financial support of Teal, the the Stanford Review uh, founder. So yeah, totally. And I, I think it's interesting because the ideology that, you know, that I've been calling, and some others also have been calling, you know, Tealism, I think, is not is not so much a political ideology. It's It's basically an ideology about sort of corporate power and and the idea that that companies and especially the founders of companies should be able to sort of do whatever they want in order to kind of make the future happen as quickly as possible that's kind of the, the an optimistic way of putting it and i think that that ideology kind of grows out of the the sort of right-wing activism that teal was involved with in stanford and and of course there are other threads that you can pull in that there's there's been an ideology of sort of libertarianism that's that's run through silicon valley it's it, none of this is totally new, but I think Thiel sort of put a new spin on it. So he strikes me as a man of so many contradictions, and and you referred to one of them a moment ago. He's an immigrant. He was born in Germany. His parents are German. They moved him here when he was just a small child, yet he backs Donald Trump and his whole nativist agenda. He's a libertarian, yet he shuts down a news site, Gawker, in, by financing the lawsuits against it. And he founds uh, a company, Palantir, that scoops up <laughs> information about all of us uh, in its many p- Pentagon contracts, and was the first outside investor in Facebook, which sucks up information about all of us, even if have, we have no connections to the world of national security. So how does he process these contradictions? And reconcile, yeah. Yeah, how does he reconcile his views and his what he's done publicly? I mean, you know, I spent a lot of time <laughs> thinking about this because, you know, because it does, it, the, the contradictions present, you know, they present challenges if you're trying to write about somebody. You know, you generally try to like, you know, figure out what their, you know, what what their overall sort of worldview is and life philosophy is. And and with Teal, you know, it's not easy. And I mean, also that's of course part of the attraction. I mean, somebody with this many contradictions, you know, it, there there's sort of an endless amount of you know thinking about it you can do. I, I think there are a couple different ways to answer it. They're probably both true. One is Teal is a hedge fund guy, I think at his core, he is really ambitious and in particular financially ambitious. And I think he's somebody for whom ideology often works, you know, in tandem and in the service of business. It's a little bit, I think, similar to the Koch brothers in the way you have this kind of business project and a a political project and they're sort of working hand in hand. And so I think some of Teal's 
political positions and ideological positions end up sort of being business positions. They just end up being like convenient things that that are good for making money or, or preserving his tax advantage status or, or whatever. The other thing I would say is, or two two other things. One is, you know, the book's called The Contrarian. I think there's an extent to which he maybe doesn't have really an ideology. He just has these kind of collection of contrarian beliefs. And and I think trying to find some a coherence to them is maybe maybe it's just a fool's errand because he's just kind of trying to come up with weird things that other people don't think or or trying to get on the nerves of the libs or or something like that. And the last thing I'll say is People call him a libertarian, but I don't really think you and he has called himself a libertarian, but I think that's probably not a even a really helpful description to, to describe Thiel's ideology or his beliefs. And I mean, he has even, you know, backed away from that starting in 2009 with this famous essay where he, you know, said he didn't really believe in democracy anymore. But I, I think, you know, it's probably better to describe him as kind of a statist or, you know, he's, he's like a far right, you know, nationalist or, or something like that. It's I, I don't perceive a lot of, you know, kind of libertarian, w- what normal people think of libertarianism in Peter Thiel's politics. So our co-host Victoria joined us, and Victoria, let me just ask one quick follow-up, and then you can feel free to jump in. I am interested in talking to you a little bit about where you kind of netted out on on what really does drive him, because there is there's ideology, there's money you mentioned, um, but there's also grievance. You just you know just sort of slipped in there that he was bullied as a child, but I wonder how much how much of an influence that had on him. And let's look at a case study. You also mentioned the um, lawsuit against Gawker that Hulk Hogan brought, and it was bank- secretly at first bankrolled uh, by Peter Thiel. So what drove him to bankroll that lawsuit, which ended up uh, bankrupting Gawker? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, there was kind of, there's like a proximate cause. There's the one that Thiel has talked about and um, and people close to Teal will bring up, which is this post in, in 2008 that, you know, was titled Peter Teal is Totally Gay People. And it was a kind of, it was structured and it had the tone of a, t- of a think piece about kind of the nature of the closet in Silicon Valley. But I mean, what it really was, was, you know, planning a big flag saying Peter Thiel is gay. He was out, you know, to friends at the time, but but I don't think he was out, and, to, and to coworkers, it's not like it was a big secret or anything, but but you know, he obviously was not ready for that and I think that definitely contributed to grievance and to and to the beginning of this campaign. Gawker was also, in addition to printing all kinds of gossip along the lines of of Teal sexuality and and you know stuff that I think, especially in retrospect, really I, I think most would probably not get published today, was doing really important uh, journalism and in particular was was you know writing critical stories about Silicon Valley at a time when very few people were, and they were. In, very critical of Peter Thiel and very critical of of many of of Thiel's friends and and colleagues. So I I don't think it was I don't think it was just the outing. I think it was the outing and the and the critical journalism together. And you know he had attempted all sorts of other and as I talk about in the book there there were other efforts to kind of screw with the company and he just kind of I don't want to say lucked out because. Gawker really screwed up and they and they published this publishing this sex tape of Hulk Hogan was like I would say a huge journalistic error also a horrible business mistake but you know that ended up being the thing that did it and I think you know I think Teal I think some of it is revenge but I I suspect that some of it is is an effort to kind of put down a marker to anybody else to, to it you know this a, a case like this sends a pretty unmistakable message which is if you write about me in a certain way, I will come for you. And that's something that, you know, he's never had to say that. He insists that the Gawker case was totally about this specific one publisher. But like, I can tell you that every newsroom, you know, every reporter, anybody who writes about him, anybody, any editor, they think about that. Yeah. That raises an obvious question, Max, which is that you've just written a, you know, of course, meticulously researched, reported and written biography, a critical biography of Peter Thiel. So is that something that you've been thinking about? I mean, are you at all concerned that he's going to come after you? Well, the answer, the answer is yes, but <laughs> I, not really any more than I'm concerned about any other billionaire. And, and that's kind of the problem with this litigation because it isn't just about Peter Thiel, right? I think I think like smart people you know can disagree on like the the justification of a a billionaire secret 
you know, campaign to destroy a journalistic outlet. I don't know when I put that in, when I say it all that I'm not, I'm not hundred percent sure that's true, but okay. But, but, but if you grant that the problem, isn't just that it's the fact that it creates this playbook that now anyone can follow. And so, as I said, it's not just when people write about Teal that they're worried about the possible secret man, you know, machinations of, of billionaires, but that other people could follow the example. And we've seen, you know, nothing that's exactly like that, but you know, there have been, I think, cases that that sort of feel like they're they're in that mold of the of the teal litigation and certainly you know lots of pre-publication threats and things like that that are being delivered to journalists every day not not by peter teal mind you but by just regular old rich guys who think what peter teal did was pretty cool is it fair to conclude that uh teal's best known protege and possibly most successful protege is is Mark Zuckerberg would you is that something you'd agree with or is there someone yeah definitely i i mean i think that's it's a I, to me, uh, that's a provocative claim and that some people would, would disagree with. But I think, I, you know, I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that that's true. And, and the reason I ask the question is because we're all aware of Facebook has been a terrific amount under, let's, let's call it a terrific amount of scrutiny over the course of the last six months with a series of revelations about the way it um, handles lies, misinformation, the way it uh, possibly is biased towards uh, certain narratives. I'm curious, what is the Thielism playbook right now that Facebook might be conducting? I mean, is, is Thiel whispering in Mark Zuckerberg's ears right now how to deal with all of the problems they've got? I mean, they do talk. I think that the the sort of the, the Thiel worldview, to the extent that he kind of, Mark Zuckerberg followed him in this, the way it manifests itself is this kind of disregard basically for the rules. And I mean... I mean that in the basically like the broadest possible sense, um, you know, ethics, but also laws, norms, maybe even kind of institutions. It's, you know, it's nihilistic, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Facebook, you know, has very successfully kind of taken this approach of growth more or less at all costs, you know, att- attempting to treat, you know, the growth of its business the way, you know, the Roman Empire might have treated, the, you know, the conquest of, of other countries. And, you know, of course, that's an analogy that Mark Zuckerberg likes and has used. And I think that it's that- It's a little creepy on its face, <laughs> but yeah. I mean, you know, the haircut. I mean, but uh, but anyway, the that I think is kind of like the, the place where it is most important, where we're like Facebook's sort of Tealism or whatever you want to call it is is kind of most clear. And like when you read these, you know, the Wall Street Journal uh, last week, you know, did this amazing series of of kind of instances of Facebook basically just lying to people, you know, collecting reports. I mean, the one that was most damning to me was the was the one about body image and Instagram, where like Zuckerberg has been delivered this report that says, you know, it's, this is pretty bad. And he gets in front of Congress and said, you know, and, and basically doesn't mention the report, doesn't say there's any evidence. And that, you know, it shows both like a, a obviously a kind of a disrespect for the institution of, of of the U.S. Congress, but also, you know, for whatever, what Facebook's responsibility is to society. And that last thing, I think, is something that Teal, you know, undeniably gave, not just to Facebook, but but to all of, or not all, but, but, but to many, many Silicon Valley companies that have kind of operated as if the their responsibility to society is basically an afterthought or not even worth talking about. And yeah, and I mean, I, I think that is the, that's at the core of it. So let's talk about the relationship with one Donald Trump. As we've mentioned, uh, he endorsed Trump. He speaks at the Republican convention. He gives over a million dollars, as you pointed out, to a Trump pro-Trump PAC during the 2016 election. Yet in your chapters about what happens after that, they're pretty interesting. He tries to place a lot of people in top White House positions, climate deniers in, you know, key scientific positions, most of them get shot down. Not everybody. Kevin Harrington, who I met at uh, the one time I had dinner at Peter Thiel's home, does get a top job at the NSC. But by and large, Thiel's picks don't. He doesn't get selected for the Intelligence Advisory Board, which he was up for. But as you point out, he rakes it in during the Trump era. Palantir gets all sorts of big Pentagon contracts that uh, really allow it to expand its business and make a mint for Peter Thiel. So tell us about why 
he failed to get the people he wanted to get in the administration, but he was still able to cash in in a big way. Yeah, I mean, the political instincts, as you kind of hint, are are not great, right? He's He was like too out there for Steve Bannon. I mean, you know, he's suggesting these people <laughs> who are— That's pretty out there, that's I, you know, I mean, yeah. I, You know, and maybe that's what Bannon said to me. But anyway, Bannon's blowing smoke, and maybe, but but I think yeah. there, is an, uh, there is a sense where— he just had no real sense of like what would be practical and and maybe even what he wanted to achieve, you know, politically inside the Trump administration. You know, he's putting putting people up for the FDA who basically want to get rid of the FDA, which, you know, again, uh, you know, cool, but it's it's it's. I'm not sure it's a great political strategy. That said, you know, I don't know that he was really. You know, I think the game he was playing, you know, was more about sort of. Behind the scenes influence, and then also, you know, setting his companies up uh, to do really well, and importantly, so so most of his picks, you know, don't go anywhere. But you know, he does set up this meeting in December uh, 2016 with all, like the all the major tech CEOs, you know, basically the guys with the ten biggest market caps, and then there are two exceptions. One of whom is Elon Musk, who now Elon Musk's company has a huge market cap, so maybe that was just forward looking. But Thiel, of course, is a major investor in Elon Musk's rocket company. You know, it's basically a defense company, and then a second defense contractor, as he said, you know, Palantir, and and Palantir at the time is like a tiny piddling little you know, software company, I mean, by, you know, at least compared to the standards of the other people in the room, gets in the room with Trump and, you know, has a very, you know, good four years. And now some of that could be just general sort of business development. The software was getting a little bit better, but I think it's hard to look at these gigantic defense contracts that they won, uh, you know, $800 million from the army, uh, you know, another $400 million from the DOD. It goes to do on and what? on. What are these contracts for? What is Palantir doing for the Pentagon? It's, uh, I mean, it's basically a piece of database software. And that's one of the things that I think is perhaps most misunderstood about Palantir. You know, the company has very successfully, I think, kind of marketed itself as this all-seeing eye. I mean, it literally has that. The name Palantir is a reference to Lord of the Rings. Teal loves Lord of the Rings references. And and the implication has always been it's like a big brother thing, you know, where where somehow you're going to collect all of these little disparate data points and they're going to be able to violate people's privacy, which I think is you know, it's theoretically that's a that's an important concern. Privacy advocates should talk about that, and we should be worried about it. But I don't think Palantir is you know especially different from from its you know competitors from from other similar software suites. They're in kind of a boring business, uh, but have managed to make it very sexy. You know, first to the media, <laughs> people like us, and then also to you know the political establishment. What did he do in 2020? Did he back Trump in the same way? And 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 how do you respond to Trump's you know lies about the stolen election? And just the other part of my Trump question is, I could sort of see how he kind of got along well with Zuckerberg, you know, a guy with Asperger's, and Thiel has some his own issues, but it's not clear that he ever really clicked with Trump that they were not really compatible. So, you know, talk about so about that. Totally, you're right. I mean, on a personal level, incompatible. And, and in fact, Teal, like a couple years before making this big donation to Trump, had said, you know, he finds Trump, I, I forget, like it's like emblematic of the worst things about New York City, which is a funny, I mean, it's a pretty cutting assessment, uh, both about Donald Trump and, you know, as a New Yorker, I could say, and New York City. But I think there was an appeal, and, and there is a, an appeal, both both to Donald Trump and to Trumpism more broadly. And, and the appeal is, Teal is somebody who has spent his entire career both kind of in politics and in business, convinced that like one of the core problems in our society is that we can't say the controversial things that we want to say. That like you're going to get accused. It's you know he he wrote a book about you know cancel culture, whatever you want to call it, before you know 20 years or 30 years before cancel culture was was even a topic of conversation. And you know in 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 1997, it's called the diversity myth. It's all about how it's totally unfair that you can't say racially or or, or controversial things about gender. You know at, at a college campus or you'll get shot shot down. And that, I think, is core to Trump's appeal and everything about his message. He's the guy who's going to say the thing that people are afraid of. He's going to, you know, burst, you know, you know, say the... And, and that, I think, has an undeniable appeal to Teal. And in, so in 2020, Teal's strategy, which I think was honestly pretty brilliant, was to kind of not say anything, not say anything to support Trump, 
but not say anything to oppose him. And so you you saw basically things, little things happening at the margins. So there was like a leak, leak to the Wall Street Journal, like maybe Teal wasn't too happy with Donald Trump. He never donated. But then he also gave an interview uh, to like a Swiss newspaper where he talked about how great Trump's COVID response was. So it's kind of like mixed messages. Well, but what did he what did he say about Joe Biden? Because, you know, there was we, we the Joe Biden was likely to win and he did. And his company Palantir depends on all those government contracts. I mean, I think he was really counting on hoping that that, you know, Trump would win. He basically called Biden senile in that same uh, Swiss newspaper interview. Uh, he compared him to Patan, the, you know, the the puppet president of Nazi occupied France. Um, so not a not a super flattering thing you want to say about your future, <laughs> uh, the future uh, guys running procurement for the company you know, that you need to sell to. And then when you went one down, one sort of layer down in the Teal network, because because really Teal is not just a he's not just he's not like a a, some, a central mover like uh, like somebody like Musk, right? He doesn't have his hand directly on every steering wheel. He he works through influence. And when you work when you look like a layer down, like the people who work for him, the people who are kind of in his inner circle, you know, they were pretty pretty all in on Trumpism, pretty all in on the idea uh, that that the election results may or may not have been stolen pretty into the, you know, the January 6th insurrection, frankly. You know, Josh Hawley, of course, famously walked into the Capitol, raised his fist in, you know, in kind of in solidarity with with the would-be uh, coup team. And so I think what he was doing and what he is doing is kind of making a play for this Trumpist part of the Republican Party, you know, the populist right. The, it's it's basically the Trump Party, whatever you want to call it. Maybe And maybe that party is going to be led by Trump, or maybe it's going to be led by by some other figure. And I think Teal's play right now is to put himself at the center of that, to be the main patron to that movement. That's why he's financially backing people like uh, Hawley, uh, and I see J.D. Vance as well, um, yes. who's right running for Senate in Ohio. That does raise the interesting question. How much of a financial player is Teal in the kind of the political world? You know, he is giving, he gave gave money to Vance. He gave money to Chris Kobach. He supported someone who's running in Arizona. I mean, is he, is he kind of, you know, poised to become the next Coke network? Is he kind of more of a bit player? He's always struck me as maybe a little too stingy for his, you know, like he's got like his, he had a bigger appetite than he really can, you know, fit in his stomach or something. Because, you know, there were rumors about him, you know, maybe starting a media thing. And I think in the end, he was kind of like a right wing media company. And I think in the end, you know, you kind of have to lose a lot of money to, 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 to make that play or, or, you know, you have to be willing to at least invest a lot of money. And I don't think he was willing to do that. And I think you've seen some of that with his political donations. That said, you know, this cycle, he's he's pledged uh, 10 million bucks to Blake Masters, who is the candidate in Arizona you brought up. Blake Masters works for him. Blake Masters is the COO of the Teal, basically Peter Teal's family office. And Has President he endorsed the uh, Arizona audit to overturn the results of the election in that state? You know what? I actually don't know. He has run ads. His, his opponent, the attorney general who certified the election, the Teal PAC has run ads like sort of knocking that guy for certifying the election. So I have to think he's pro audit, although I'm not 100 percent sure like whether. But but yeah, he's generally, you know, running to be the, the Trumpiest candidate, running to be the guy who's going to clean up, you know, the voting situation in Arizona. And another ten, as, so 10 million there, 10 million to J.D. Vance. That's 20 million bucks on on two you know Senate races where, uh, you know, it's not a sure thing in either case. I think Vance in particular, uh, there have been some polls there. They don't look super good. So, you know, that's a that's a big investment. I mean, I don't know if it's quite on the kind of Coke scale, but it's getting there, I think. Uh, it's and it's just definitely a huge step up, um, you know, from 2016 when when and, and 2020, where, you know, he spent a couple million bucks basically in each of those cycles. And now he's already you know on the hook for 20. Well, he is a billionaire, so uh, I suppose it's 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 something he can well afford. I, I got to, uh, you know, in talking about the Trump stuff, one passage in the book struck me as kind of delicious, which is when he spoke at that Republican convention in Cleveland in 2016, he was sandwiched in between Jerry Falwell Jr. and Tom Barrack both of whom have had quite a few problems <laughs> since that time. You know, Falwell deposed as the president of Liberty University after the, uh, starting with the pool boy coming forward with the racy photos, and Barrack recently indicted for violations of the 
FARA, Foreign Agents Registration Act. I assume you reached out to Teal while you were reporting the book. Did he cooperate in any way? Did he talk to you on or off the record? And what's been his reaction since the book came out? Uh, he uh, did not co- cooperate formally, but you know, I approached this book. I approached this book as a down the middle piece of journalism. So, you know, I t- I I approached Teal early. I tried to talk to you know all of his friends. You know, it, it, the the idea here was not just to like find you know the people who want to say bad shit about Teal. Like, I really wanted to get his perspective, and I I, I did. I wanted to cut through the you know, whatever the mythology in both directions, both the kind of Peter Thiel, the supervillain, and also Peter Thiel, the, you know, Ayn Randian, you know, superhero or something. So I met with him off the record. I sent them before publication, you know, a long, long list of um, fact-checking questions um, uh, that they did not respond to on the record. So there's no on-the-record statement or whatever. But, you know, they were engaged throughout the process. I believe he's read the book uh, or at least had parts of it described to him. I don't know. But I haven't gotten any any kind of formal reaction. But I will say, you know, no matter what your political – there's a lot of this stuff that is, I think, politically, you know, pretty distasteful. But like what you just brought up about the Republican convention, right, where, where you had these guys who – anybody who got close to Trump basically – you know, it, it sort of ruined their lives. And Teal somehow managed to navigate it. And I think you have to kind of give credit where due, where like he was able to you know, fly close to this Trump movement and somehow come out of it okay. And maybe that's just because he's got so much money and, you know, whatever. But but I do think he's, he's really shown uh, time and again that he has some aptitude for making these investments, even if those investments are, you know, uh, often a bit destructive or controversial or whatever. So the, one of the central theses of your book is that Teal dominates Silicon Valley, and that it's a that he's a kind of a critical player in reshaping that that you know that businesses or that industry's pursuit of power. I'm curious, though, are there are there any counterweights to Teal in Silicon Valley? Is there any alternative, or is this what Silicon Valley is? So it kind of depends what you mean by alternative. I mean, because there are certainly people who are kind of vying to play this role on the left, right? There's like Reid Hoffman and Dustin Moskovitz. Reid Hoffman, who is close to Peter Thiel, you know, making a lot of donations to Democratic-aligned candidates. Um, and Dustin Moskovitz, of course, another prominent kind of left donor who is, who is close to Mark Zuckerberg. But I kind of think that both of those guys are actually a lot closer to Teal than most people realize. And again, they're definitely backing different candidates. But in terms of this sort of value of sort of getting these Silicon Valley companies as big as possible, as quickly as possible, damn the consequences. That thing is something that I think a lot of these, even the the, the lefty Silicon Valley kind of billionaires, they basically share that view. And and there are some exceptions. You know, maybe, uh, you know, Mark Benioff, I think, is like trying to make a play here. You know, Lorraine Jobs is, you know, making, I, I, you know, I don't know if it's fair to include her in that, in this category, but whatever. She is also spending a lot of money philanthropically. But again, I think there's been this thing where, Silicon Valley 20 years ago was kind of an insurgent industry. It was like Peter Thiel at Stanford, kind of the loser at the party. No one wanted to talk to it. No one really cared. And in in a very short span of time, these companies went from being basically the primary economic, cultural, and maybe not quite yet, but but you know, kind of on the rise politically as well. And I don't think they've totally reckoned with what that power means or what that power, you know, what what they really owe to society. And I don't think there are that many people with Peter Thiel money or Reed Hoffman money who are really thinking about that question. Probably the most disturbing part of the book is the relationship he's had with various alt-right characters. This guy, Charles Johnson, who I've had some experiences with, is pretty out there. You know, he's sort of a professional provocateur on the far right. Um, And, you know, it just is a bit incongruous to hear about a guy like Teal who, you know, has close relationships with people, all sorts of powerful people in Silicon Valley, Zuckerberg, Elon Musk, you know, uh, in Washington, he's got, you know, obviously he had some power during the Trump era, and yet he's flirting, if that's the right word, with these really um, outrageous alt-right folks. I mean, Teal has spent his entire career embracing, you know, these provocateurs. I mean, you know, in a lot of people in tech know this, but I think 
maybe, but out in the outside world, they don't. But you know, when when Teal was at Stanford, one of his close friends, this guy Keith Raboy, who is a very well known venture capitalist now, you know, stood outside a, stack, a Stanford faculty member's house, hurling you know homophobic slurs, saying, "I hope you die of AIDS," and that became a a scandal. Um, you know, Teal defended this guy, defended his right to to speak, and that was kind of the beginning of Teal's career as this kind of conservative pundit he has always been kind of embracing this kind of character and i think the the valley has a tendency to not think about politics and it and it goes back to that question it goes back to the the whole thing about what you owe society and i think they just don't feel like they owe society anything and i mean right now this guy Curtis Yarvin, who's another kind of teal protege, you know, is is basically going around talking about you know how we need an American Caesar, and and like I don't think people have really, especially tech people, have really gotten through their heads what that means or or what it means to be you know to be talking about you know an end to American democracy as if it would be a good thing, and I, you know I, I don't I, I don't know I mean it's and and, I, and that's why I mean that's part of the reason I wrote the book because I think it's really if the people who run these companies that run our lives you know don't have clear ideas about democracy you know that that worries me. So Max, bottom line, what do you think Peter Thiel's ambitions, longer term ambitions are. I mean, he's still a young man. He's got a ton of money. He obviously wants power and influence. But to what end? Where do you think he's going? I mean, I think, okay, so a couple of things. One is he has two small children. It is possible. And I certainly heard from people uh, who are close to him that they say he's like, he's mellowing out. You know, he's gonna, he's, he's done with uh, provocations, you know, no more, you know, no more crypto fascism where, you know, it's going to be all about the kids now. But I, I think that, um, Teal is just a born provocateur. And I think it would be very hard for him to kind of stop doing that. And, and, and of course, he hasn't really stopped doing that because, you know, it, it, sort of towards the end of the Trump administration, he picked a fight with Google and he started calling uh, the, the guys who run Google uh, trade uh, traitors to, to the United States and suggesting that the CIA get involved. And, and that thread, you know, kind of continues in Congress. There, J.D. Vance uh, brought this up a couple months ago. So I don't know. I mean, I think he will continue to play this role as the political provocateur. And I also think, you know, he will find ways to to make it work for him, you know, on a business level. He is, you know, uh, not the richest of these guys. He's he's made his money in a, in a sort of much more meticulous way. He's a trader. He's somebody who, you know, generally sells his investments, you know, bef- early because when he when it's time to cash out. And so I, my guess is he will continue, you know, investing and continue um, trying to build this political movement. And I think it's kind of working. Like, I mean, it's a obviously the the teal, this kind of far right part of the Republican Party where teal is a player. It's very small, but I think it is ascendant. And it, it's maybe it's not going to be ascendant enough to amount to anything. Maybe it'll eventually fizzle out. And maybe the fact that Curtis Yarvin, this uh, guy, was on Tucker Carlson's show, maybe that's actually the high watermark. But it might not be. It might be just the beginning. And so, so I don't know. I think I think it, it totally remains to be seen whether we've sort of seen. Teal's great, you know, last act in the sort of Trump world, or whether it was just a prelude to something more. And I, I kind of tend to the latter, although, of course, I don't know. Well, either way, the book is a uh, really fascinating and important read for anybody inter- interested in Silicon Valley and uh, how it interacts with folks in Washington. Max, I want to thank you and good luck with the book. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me.